Good afternoon. Can everyone hear me? Okay, even at the back, Kathy, you got me? Great. I'm Dr. James Brooks, the uh, Melanie Trent DeShutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you today to this noontime lecture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, its present, and of course, its future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. I just wanna start by just letting you know about a few upcoming events here at the VMHC. So this coming Friday, we're gonna be hosting our July 1st Friday. Uh, First Fridays, as you may know, are events when the museum is open from five till 8 p.m. on the first Friday evening of the month with free admission. So we'll be hosting live music, we'll be hosting food vendors. There's gonna be a display of unique items um, from our collection in the library that relate to July 4th, as well as family-centered activities. So especially for members, if you do have friends who you want to share the VMHC with, Friday is certainly the evening to do it. Next week on July 13th at 6 p.m., we're gonna have our next in-person lecture which is gonna be Brent Tarter, who's here to speak about his most recent book, which is exploring constitutional history in Virginia. And following that on July 20th at noon, we're gonna be welcoming Dr. Teasel Moyer-Harmony of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum for a talk on rare objects that relate to the Apollo missions. So if you still haven't had time to um, see our current exhibition on Apollo, July 20th is gonna be a really wonderful day to explore that exhibition and then come and hear uh, Dr. Moya Harmony uh, speak um, on some of the Smithsonian's collections that relate to Apollo. So now on to today's talk, and just before we get started, can I just ask you to check that all your phones and devices are turned off or switched to silent, please? Um, today's talk is incredibly relevant, given that we've just passed the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, and that, of course, we are in Richmond, which is going to be sort of the region um, in focus in, in today's talk. So as Robert E. Lee and George Meade battled it out at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, Union General John Dix launched an offensive involving 20,000 U.S. troops against Richmond which sought to cut the railways that shuttled supplies northward to the Army of Northern Virginia. To some, Dix's campaign presented a tremendous chance to strike hard at the Confederate capital, but others saw it as unnecessary dallying by Union soldiers who could have been much more effectively deployed in defense of Washington or in confronting Lee's men on Northern soil. And here to tell the story of what became known as the Blackberry Raid is Hampton Newsom. Hampton is the author of several award-winning books on the Civil War, including Richmond Must Fall, The Richmond-Petersburg Campaign, October 1864, and The Fight for the Old North State, The Civil War in North Carolina. His most recent title, and the subject of today's talk, is Gettysburg's Southern Front, Opportunity and Failure at Richmond. Gettysburg's Southern Front received the Edwin C. Bears Book Award for Outstanding Scholarship in Civil War History from the Chicago Civil War Roundtable and has been named one of the top 10 books of 2022 by the Civil War Books and Authors. So please join me today in welcoming Hampton Newsom. Okay, well... Thanks so much for coming. When I got out of the car, I wasn't sure I'd make it into the museum because summer is certainly here. So I appreciate that you've come today. I uh, see a couple of familiar faces in uh, the audience. Um, I'm a Richmond native, so I'm uh, always happy to, had, happy to come back here and talk. So, all right, so we, we heard a little bit about what this is about. Um, and so we're talking about the events that are discussed in my book, Gettysburg Southern Front. And uh, the, uh, so the, the bottom line here is like when you, 
when you walk away, you know, I went and saw, I, I, I heard this lecture and, you know, you're always kind of thinking for me, at least like, what was the lecture about? You know? Um, so when you talk to your friends, you can say, did you know that during the Gettysburg campaign, there were 20,000 federal troops right outside Richmond conducting an advance against the city? And when you ask, you can ask your friends that. And if your friends are like most of my friends, they'll say, Hampton, I really don't want to talk about the Civil War history anymore. Can we talk about something else? But for your other friends that, you know, that might be interested in it, this is something that you can drop on them and, and uh, discuss it with them. And so what we'll try to do in the next several minutes is kind of uh, give the background, like how did this happen? Um, you know, what, what was going on? What were the results? Um, this is a, you have come to a lecture about a very obscure subject, um, just so you know. Uh, and, uh, but one I find, you know, interesting nonetheless. And uh, even when I talk to groups like Civil War roundtables uh, over the last couple of years, as I was working on this book, I would ask people if they've ever heard of the Blackberry Raid or if they heard of Dick's, you know, uh, advance on Richmond during the Gettysburg campaign. Couple of people will raise their hand, but it's not a very well-known uh, issue. But um, nonetheless, it's a, it's a, I think an important part of the Gettysburg story, an important part of uh, history around Richmond during the Civil War. So, so just to give a little outline, so you, as we're going through, you can kind of gauge like, okay, where 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 are we in this talk? So, so first, I'm going to talk about. Um, Lee's, uh, Robert E. Lee's decision to march north uh, that kind of uh, triggered the Gettysburg campaign, then talk about the response from the federal high command, particularly Henry Halleck and the orders he gives uh, commanders in Virginia and North Carolina in reaction to what Lee's doing. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the federal and Confederate troops in the region at the time, and then we'll talk about this operation, the, the, this this uh, this campaign against Richmond that was conducted by John Dix. We'll talk about the plans and some of the uh, the the engagements and the operations that happened uh, during the uh, during the the campaign. Um, we'll also throw in a little bit of diplomacy. During this time, there was a diplomatic effort by Alexander Stevens, uh, the Confederate Vice President. And then we'll try to wrap it up and see what it what it all means. So, and and just you know, I they say you shouldn't do this, but I do want to give you know spoiler alert. The, the this this engagement that we're talking about, this operation, did not result in the capture of Richmond during the Gettysburg campaign. So I don't want people to sit during the talk and think, God, did I miss something? Like was there? Was there, you know, did, did Richmond fall during Gettysburg? And then maybe, you know, it was taken back. So anyway, but any, it's, it's a story I think it's full. They're full of possibilities and interesting events. And it represents to me one of the intriguing overlooked uh, chapters of the war. So anyway, all right, so let's get started. Um, and let's start with the familiar. So in June of 1863, Robert E. Lee leaves the... Um, the front at Fredericksburg, and he heads north into Pennsylvania and, uh, and goes through the Shenandoah Valley up into Maryland, up into Pennsylvania. And there are lots of different reasons that people give for why this happened. This is an interesting, um, you know, the inter interesting set of questions that people talk about a lot. But, you know, generally a lot of, uh, a lot of reasons are thrown out. You know, he, he's look, Lee's looking to gain supplies because He's got a real supply problem in Virginia. He wants to head north and kind of depress northern morale with some victories up there and reap some political uh, benefits that may uh, erode northern will um, at the war. Uh, he wants to relieve central Virginia from all the armies that have been there for um, a year or two. Uh, he also believes that shifting the war north is the best way to protect Richmond, not to not to hole up in Richmond, but to head north to move the war up there. And he's also, some people say he's looking to achieve a decisive military victory up there. He wants to string out the 
the U.S. forces and defeat them in detail. So he's looking for big results. And there's also the issue of foreign recognition. You know, he's looking for victories that will maybe help the Confederacy with foreign governments. Um, so when Lee does this, there is a federal, there's a reaction um, among, within the federal high command to that. And obviously the, the um, first reaction is to follow Lee and try to counter Lee as he's going north. But, um, the, and, and, but Hooker, who is in command of the uh, Army of the Potomac at the time, the U.S. Army, he, he uh, suggests to Lincoln that he says, well, why don't Lee's going north? Why don't we just go after Richmond? And Lincoln says, I'm concerned that if you do that and you go over the river south of Fredericksburg, that you'll be like an ox jumped over a fence. And so Lincoln, in his mind, he wants the, uh, the army to track Lee up into uh, Pennsylvania. So that's kind of the, that's the more well-known thing. So this is a little bit about the maps. This is the map that's in the book that probably no one can see at all. Um, and so I have these maps for this. Every other map's going to look like this. So it's a little more basic. So here goes Lee, there goes Hooker, okay? So the thing that's a little less known is this issue of Lee's supply line. When he's going north, what, what are his vulnerabilities? Um, and when he, when he gets into Pennsylvania, the army, they're doing a lot of foraging, so food's not a big problem, but they're still moving men and material um, between Richmond and Pennsylvania throughout this campaign. And this goes over several weeks. You know, it takes a while to march up there, and then there's the battle, and then there's the getting back. Um, and so he has this, this logistical tale, and these, these uh, solid red is the, the railroads. So the railheads are at Culpeper and Stanton, and then he's moving stuff by wagon, primarily from Stanton, because the, the valley's a little more shielded, up to his army. And this is happening, it's hard to tell, the records are kind of sparse on this, but it's happening throughout the campaign. So this is a vulnerability for Lee, all of this red stuff behind him in, um, up, up there. So the, uh, so the, and one of the key things are these rail connections in north of Richmond. There are actually two rail lines that are not um, denoted on here, but there are these two bridges north of Richmond that are very important to this connection. So given this vulnerability, the, um, this guy, Henry Halleck, who's general in chief in, um, in Washington, he kind of has an eye, he has an idea for not only con confronting Lee directly, everybody's doing that, but he also wants to confront, um, deal with Lee indirectly. And so Halleck, he's an interesting character in the war. He has some success out west early and, uh, and he moves to, uh, he, he gets promoted, goes to DC and at the time he's in DC and he's kind of coordinating the um, the war effort. And he was a very intelligent, very hard worker, kind of known as a military theor theoretician before the war, um, also um, successful businessman. He's, he's considered, you know, he was considered kind of a big figure at the time. When he gets in this role in DC, he kind of loses some of his luster uh, and he's kind of fills this role of being kind of like a capable middle manager. Um, and uh, and one of the problems that one of the criticisms of him is that he he has this corrosive tendency toward indecision. Um, so he's more just kind of moving things around, but he's not really directing things. Well, Halleck, when Lee's heading north, he sees an opportunity, and he directs the large force that's down at Port Monroe, the U.S. force under John Dix, to threaten Richmond. Um, he orders the forces in West Virginia to threaten the rail line here from that goes back to Tennessee. And then also the forces in North Carolina, there are lots of Union forces on the coast at the time to hit this red, this, this rail line here, the Wilmington and uh, Weldon Railroad, which is very key artery to Richmond and to Lee's army. So in doing so, he's kind of, he, he has this plan and it's not discussed a lot uh, when you're talking about the uh, Gettysburg campaign, partly because he doesn't, he makes this plan and he doesn't, he kind of gives the orders, but he's got other things to do and he doesn't spend a lot of time kind of cultivating these ideas. But it's this interesting kind of uh, counter blow that he is thinking about there. 
So, and he tells John Dix in particular, um, this guy down here in uh, east of Richmond, he says, take all your available forces and concentrate to threaten Richmond by seizing and destroying their railroad bridges over the South and North Anna rivers and do them all the damage possible. Now, this language, it's a little vague and it uh, ends up causing some problems, but he's, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but he definitely is ordering John Dix to go after Richmond. Now, who is John Dix? Um, so John Dix, he is in command of what they call the Department of Virginia. And that's, these are the units that are east of Richmond. They're based at Fort Monroe. They're also in, in Norfolk, they're in Yorktown. It's about 30,000 men and is not a small force. And Dix is in charge and he's given this job of going after Richmond as Lee is heading up toward Gettysburg. And uh, so Dix, he's kind of an overlooked figure. Uh, he's in his 60s during the, uh, the war and he's certainly kind of a quintessential political general. He's a Democrat or loyal Democrat. He was very um, supportive of the Lincoln administration. He had served as a youth, he had served in the War of 1812, um, but then he left the armed forces and he spent a lot of his career as a politician, as a newspaper editor, a lot of different things, a lot of positions in public service. And he was also a bit of a hero early in the war during the secession crisis. He was the, um, he was the uh, Secretary of Treasure, um, Treasury in the uh, Buchanan administration and so when he, when, when the, um, the uh, Coast Guard, the revenue cutters in New Orleans were being threatened during, as, uh, as Southern forces were kind of taking over installations, he sent orders down there and he said, if uh, anyone attempts to haul down the American flag, shoot him on the spot. And this became, this was printed in newspapers all over the place. There were little tokens that were made. Uh, they called them Dick's tokens. And you can see them sometimes in museums and that kind of thing. So he was a very capable administrator, but he was probably not the person you wanted to be kind of commanding a combat operation. Um, so this is, so Dix is given this, this, these orders to go after Richmond and he brings his force up to White House Landing, which is right on the Pamunkey right east of here, about 20 miles. And he's kind of given these, uh, he, he has to make some decisions. And so he, he brings about two thirds of his force. He brings 20,000 men, uh, 19,000 infantry and about a thousand cavalry. And uh, he's there at White House landing. And uh, he, uh, you know, he's trying to decide, well, what does Halleck really want me to do? Does he want me to attack Richmond directly? Or does he want to go me to go up and burn these bridges, or does he want me to do a little bit of both? And Dix does what every um, unsuccessful general does. He holds a lot of councils of war. And so there's a lot of talking and uh, a lot, everybody kind of convinces themselves that Richmond's uh, too tough. You know, maybe we'll do some raids. Uh, let's have another meeting tomorrow. And so, you know, they're, they're talking about this trying to figure out what to do. And while this is happening, while Dix is outside of Richmond, you've got uh, the, the defenders in Richmond. And at the time, Richmond, um, it was not lightly defended, but you wouldn't say it was heavily defended. There were this very extensive network of um, fortifications around Richmond, kind of three layers. Uh, there was a there was kind of a local defense force uh, and uh, and some standing units kind of the that were kind of permanently assigned to Richmond. And then there were three veteran brigades, some of the troops taken left behind by Lee's army. And uh, so that there were there were about maybe 12,000, 13,000 troops in Richmond. So that's what what Dix is, um, you know, what what he's dealing with. And the um, so the in command of those kind of veteran troops was this guy, D.H. Hill. And D.H. Hill, he's a, um, you know, he's kind of an interesting figure in the, uh, in the army. He's, he, he was, he's fearless, very intelligent, 
but let's just say he had really bad sandbox skills. And he tended to kind of get crosswise with his superiors. Uh, one thing that I find particularly interesting about it, he, he would put these funny, he's very whimsical, put these funny things in his official reports and dispatches. When someone from his regiment came up and said, well, we're trying to figure out whether to give this equipment or whatever to the, to the band or to the rest of the men, um, he, he wrote back and he said, shooters before tutors. Um, so the band lost out there. Um, but, you know, he was this constant critic, um, and, uh, and he, he would say things that he really shouldn't have said in reports, and he criticized actions that were well beyond his authority. So he kind of gets, after the fighting in 1862 and into 1863, he kind of gets exiled, and he's in control of the department that deals with Petersburg, and North Carolina, and when Lee goes north, he comes to Richmond to protect Richmond. So, so that's what we have. We got Dix outside Richmond, twenty thousand men. We've got D.H. Hill. He's got about four thousand, maybe, of these veterans, and then he's got a lot of um, other troops, militia units, um, some some other things. And so that's what's facing. That's what's happening here, and this is all happening in late June. So Lee starts his march in early June. He reaches Maryland, Pennsylvania in late June, headed to Gettysburg. Just Gettysburg, you know, the battle itself happened July 1st through the 3rd. So that's all of these, all of these events are happening while things are happening up um, with Lee in Pennsylvania. So little sideshow um, here. The While this is going on, Alexander Stevens, who is the vice president of the Confederacy, he has this idea before Lee has started his campaign that maybe this is a good time to open up some um, diplomatic discussions with the Lincoln administration. And his, so, so Stevens, you know, he's, he's kind of, uh, he, he's, he's pretty well known. Um, and, uh, but as vice president, much like his counterpart in the U.S. government, he, didn't really have a um, he he didn't really have a lot to do like he didn't have a lot of formal role and uh, my thinking about him is he throughout the war he he's down in Georgia a lot of the time at his plantation he's writing a lot of letters he's he's issuing a lot of opinions and things like that he's involved in several diplomatic efforts and so I I tend to think of him as like his specialty during the war was failed diplomacy. Um, and this is also the guy who um, who gave the cornerstone speech early in the war, and uh, he clarified that everyone to everyone that slavery was at the heart of the uh, the Confederate rebellion. And so, and so Stevens he has this proposal. If you go through Stevens' paper, first of all, his handwriting is very hard to read, and secondly, he he writes kind of like a really bad William Faulkner. Like there are these really long sentences. You don't really know where they're going. You don't really know what they're saying. But he proposes this diplomatic mission. He asked President Dave Jefferson Davis about it, and so they, you know, they talk about, uh, you know, doing this. And when you read between the lines, they they say, well, we really want to talk about the prisoner exchange with the with the Union official. But when you read between the lines, what he's what they're really looking at is they, you know, had some big victories during the spring, Chancellorsville, what have you, and so they're looking for some kind of perhaps peace negotiation. Now that's that's generally what's understood. What they're thinking about at the time with this diplomatic mission, but they never really come right out and say it. The other little thing about Stevens at the time, when you look at his correspondence, this is a period in the war where the black units in in the North are beginning to. Um, to be recruited and formed and that kind of thing. Stevens is obsessed with these these new black red regiments, and he's talking about them all the time in his in his um in his correspondence. All right, so so we've got this military thing. We've got John Dix outside Richmond. We've got the Confederate forces in there, and then we've got Alexander Stevens who comes north during this time, comes up to Richmond, ready to do this. Um, this this mission. Okay, so back to Dix. So what does he do? The first thing he does is he he sends out a, a cavalry raid under 
Samuel Spears. And uh, Samuel Spears. And so this happens on June 26. I'm not going to get into the tactical details of these engagements uh, because um, Graham told me, Graham and James told me I didn't have six hours. Um, on, you know, uh, bummer. But, uh, but so this happens on June 26. Spear goes to the Virginia Central Railroad Bridge, which is just north of Hanover Courthouse, and, and uh, successfully burns the bridge. Very interesting engagement. There is a Confederate force there. It's tiny. It's about 100 North Carolina uh, troops that um, were left behind to guard the bridges. Spear has about 1,000 men. This is a fight that you, you see in paintings and stuff, you see close quarter combat in the Civil War. That was very unusual in the Civil War. But it did happen during this engagement here at the Virginia Central Bridge, a vicious fight. And it lasted, it didn't last a really long time, but it lasted long enough for Spear to, to um, be delayed at getting at the other bridge that was downstream. And so in a way it was kind of a, a mixed result for Spear. Spear comes back after the raid um, uh, back to uh, Dix's base at White, um, White House Landing. So it's kind of an only partial victory, but one of these bridges is burned, and that's you know this connection we were talking about to Lee's army. Now, the other interesting thing about this raid, another interesting thing, there are lots of interesting things, but the, um, so at the time, there's this plantation, Hickory Hill, that's just south of that bridge. It's owned by the Wickham family, relatives of Robert E. Lee, one of Robert E. Lee's son, Rudy Lee. Now, one of the first engagements of the Gettysburg campaign is um, the the uh, the big cavalry battle a couple of weeks before, as they're heading back up, heading up into Pennsylvania. And during that battle, Rudy Lee gets um, a round in his thigh, and so he goes to convalesce here. Uh, during Spear Spear's raid, he hears that Rudy Lee is at this. Um, at this farm, and so he sends a company of cavalrymen there, and they come and they capture him, and they carry him out of his where where he's uh, staying on his mattress, basically, and they load him up in a wagon, and they he becomes a prisoner of war, and this uh, starts he he gets involved in a lot of uh, he kind of becomes a pawn in a lot of the discussion about uh, prisoner of war exchanges that occur over the next couple of months, so. Uh, one of the things about this event is that there, when you look at all the sources, there are conflicting stories about the roles of the enslaved people at the plantation. Some stories saying that um, the, from the Lee family that the enslaved people uh, helped out, they hid horses and that kind of thing. There are several union um, accounts that indicate that enslaved people told them, hey, Robert E. Lee's son is over here at the plantation. So that was a different, uh, interesting aspect of that. All right. So before we get back to Dick, so Dix, Dix has done that first, that first attack, burn that bridge. It's late June. Before we get there, just two quick, two sub themes here that go, that kind of pervade this operation. One is this concept of, of hard war. Um, and the, uh, the, um, Let's see. Let's get, get to the notes. Um, so the John Dix is an interesting character because he he's he's pretty conservative, and so he has problems with with prosecuting a hard war, going after civilian property and that kind of thing. And you see that repeatedly in all his orders to his men, like do not go after um, after civilian property. And so he's kind of a at this point in the war, that thinking is kind of changing. But he's one of the one of the Union um, uh, generals that felt like, well, if we're just if if we if we're not too hard on the Confederates, and a lot of the Confederate leaders, a lot of the important people in the South will decide, well, this isn't worth it, this rebellion, and we'll go back. And this is kind of Dix's thinking. He also found, you know, the the this kind of. Uh, going after civilian property, that kind of thing, distasteful generally. And so that was his position. And you see this, uh, there's a chapter in the book about this raid that occurs before this, um, 
the lo local raid um, commanded by this very interesting guy named Charles Tevis. Tevis burns a lot of farms. Dix is not happy with it at all. And so that's kind of a theme there. A second theme is the involvement of enslaved people in, in these events during this time. Um, and this wasn't a topic of focus for me when I first set out, but, um, but it was what, what I found in my research was that at every turn, um, the enslaved people would step forward to aid the U.S. commanders. Um, and th this isn't a, so, so they, would, they would help them out with information about the, the locations of Confederate troops. They would describe their local road network. They would explain the local geography. There's a ford down here. There's a river down there. Um, and th this isn't a novel observation. This happened throughout the war. But what was interesting to me was that in this campaign, which is relatively understudied, no one had done a book-length treatment of it before, um, that this just, you know, it was just there all the time. It was and always mentioned kind of in passing in reports um, from the Union generals and that kind of thing. The other aspect is that Throughout these several weeks when this campaign happened, um, the, the enslaved people from properties nearby were constantly, um, so they, they were gaining their own freedom, self-emancipation. And, uh, and this, was, this was in areas that had been, uh, that where there had been a presence of federal troops for, the, you know, for, for months previously. And I think it underscores how complicated kind of the decision was to leave, you know, the plantation and try to escape, and you see, you see in accounts the the decisions that people have to make. Well, can if I leave, I'm leaving somebody, a loved one behind, or whatever. Um, but still, during this time, from what you see from the accounts, is that there are thousands and thousands of people that, during this relatively minor operation, leave uh, these plantations and they come to White House Landing, and then they go to. Fort Monroe, and they they serve the Union war effort as laborers. Some of them, uh, some of them sign up with uh, with the regiments, with the United the U.S. Colored Troops, U.S.C.T. Uh, units, and and what have you. So that was an um, interesting aspect to me. Um, so so Dix, you know, he's got has his first thing, and now we get to his main. He's used his thousand cavalrymen, but he's also got these 19,000 infantrymen. It's late June. Um, things are kind of heating up in Pennsylvania. And so what he decides to do is kind of have this two-pronged uh, lunge. He wants to go back and get that, that bridge that he didn't burn. Now here you can see there are these two railroads here. The first one has already been burned, and he's going after the second one, the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad, the RFNP. The other one's the Virginia, Virginia Central, if I didn't mention that. And so he's decided that going after Richmond directly uh, is probably not going to work, um, given his force size and given what he thinks is in Richmond. And he's generally correct. So he has this two-pronged approach. He divides his forces. He's got the Seventh Corps, basically the Seventh Corps and the Fourth Corps, the two kind of main tactical formations he has with him. He sends... Erasmus Keys with the Fourth Corps to conduct a feint against um, the Confederate positions on the Chickahominy uh, at uh, Bottoms Bridge, east of Richmond. And then he sends George Washington um, Getty with the Seventh Corps to go and burn that second bridge. And this is kind of the big operation, about 10,000 men there, here about 5,000, and he keeps some back at White House. Well, Keyes, his job is to, you know, make it look like it's real, you know, and uh, draw the Confederates out of Richmond. Um, and just in a nutshell, Keyes does a really bad job. Um, and he kind of marches out a couple miles and then stops before he gets to the bridges. And he writes all these things back to Dick saying, you know, hey, there are all these roads here and the Confederates could show up anywhere. I'm a little concerned. I'm just going to stop here. He stops at a place called Crump's Crossroads, which today is called Quinton in New Kent County. And he just kind of plops there. Um, and uh, D.H. Hill, he, um, he comes out and D.H. Hill, Hill's a smart guy. He may not get along with people uh, all the time, but, uh, 
he he goes out, he brings his veteran brigades, uh, Ransom, Cook, Jenkins, uh, uh, these are the, the brigade commanders, and he just comes out and he hits keys pretty hard at Crump's Crossroads, and there's a, um, there's a battle there on July 2nd, so this is while Gettysburg's happening, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, Keyes doesn't really do much. He withdraws back to Tallysville, which is about a mile or two east of there. And uh, Hill says, well, this is pretty clear. This is just, they're just trying to fake us out here. This is just a feint. And so he withdraws and he says, what they're really going to do is try to hit these bridges up there because he knows what, you know, where the vulnerabilities are and where the targets are. And so he moves back up north. So that's Keyes. And Keyes just kind of sits there for several more days. Dick's con constantly writing him. Um, not much happened. So Getty, Getty actually gets to his target, but and he his his operation begins at the same time, but it takes longer to get up there. And during the march, and this is where the word the, the term get Blackberry Raid comes. A lot of people are probably sitting around, why is this thing called the Blackberry Raid? What's the point? So it's very, very hot um, during this time in, uh, in early July. There's a lot of heat stroke in Getty's column. Um, the dozens and dozens of men actually die from the heat. And uh, at this time, the roads are just lined with blackberry bushes. And so the men are constantly stopping and they're having blackberries and they're trying to rest. And so that's why the, the, uh, the men with this column, they kind of dubbed this operation the Blackberry Raid. Um, well, Getty, over several days, makes his way up to the South Anna to hit that bridge up there. And he does, you know, Keyes has his problems. Getty has his problems, too. Getty is a not really well-known general in the Civil War, but he, he's very successful um, later on in 1864 and 1865. Here in 1863, he follows this kind of curious, like what I call a breadcrumb strategy as he's heading toward this bridge. He's leaving these packets of men along the way, perhaps to guard his rear as he's coming back or something. He's never very clear about it. So he leaves he leaves men at bridges and then at Hanover Courthouse. When he gets to Hanover Courthouse, which is about eight miles away from the target, this bridge that he's going after, he stops and stays in Hanover and hands over the operation to this very young general, this guy named Robert Foster. Um, and Foster finally makes it to, um, to the bridge and he makes it there on July 4th. So the day after the uh, um, you know, things are happening at Gettysburg and he conducts a night attack. With this breadcrumb strategy, the, the 10,000 men are kind of whittled down. By the time they get to the bridge, it's about 4,000. When Foster gets to that bridge in the middle of the night, and this is a bridge, you can see it. Be careful when you're driving. But when you, you, if you're going up 95 and you go across the South Anna and you look to the left and you see that the railroad bridge here, that's what we're talking about. Now, the railroad bridge there today is not the same one that was there in 1863. The one in 1863 actually followed, uh, um, it's a little bit more, up, was a little bit more upstream. One of the abutments is still there, I believe. So anyway, so this guy Foster, he has 4,000 men. Instead of sending them all against this bridge, because this is what they're there for, to burn this bridge. He sends two companies from one New York regiment and two companies, this is a new regiment, so they're pretty big companies, but still, it's about 200 men. And he sends these 200 men out in the darkness and, and they're just very unsuccessful. Um, and he doesn't support them really very much. And he comes back and they fail. They fail to burn this bridge. And Getty makes his way back to White House. And, the, uh, and that, that's, the, that's the end of Dix's active campaign. So very successful cavalry raid against the Virginia Central and then very unsuccessful infantry operations. Not a lot gets done. So um, let's just get to, um, yeah, so... So the, the, these are just maps of, of these operations. So the, the, uh, so the same thing happens with, with uh, Halleck and his other operations. The, um, there is an attack on the railroad in North Carolina. It, 
it breaks operations for maybe a couple hours because they ripped up about a mile of track. Turns out in the Civil War, when you when you rip up track or burn bridges, they were very um, good at fixing them. And so these these this is a kind of theme I go into in the book. Um, the question about well, how useful are these attacks on railroads? Same thing. There's an unsuccessful raid out on at Withville, and so. This plan, Halleck, which sounded pretty good, maybe with the first slide, oh, look, there are all these arrows, things are going to happen. Not a lot happens with that. And then we get to, um, well, the, the oh, Stevens down there. So Stevens, he does get on a little boat, the torpedo, goes down the river. He's waiting to go up to D.C. and talk about diplomacy with the Lincoln administration. He, he has these dispatches. He asks for permission to go up there, and he's bobbing along there. And so it's like the, the 2nd, July 3rd, and everybody knows what's happening, right? And, and, and during this time in the Lincoln administration, they are talking about this operation in Richmond all the time. It's not a big thing that anyone knows about now, but at the time, it was important because there was this big force outside of Richmond. There, were talk, there was talk about replacing Dix with Hooker. Maybe we should attack Richmond. Maybe we shouldn't. There's big opportunity down in Richmond. And others were, maybe it's not a big opportunity. And then they get this dispatch from Stevens. Stevens wants to have this, you know, discussion. And uh, so they're doing, and then they get, as they're waiting, they get news from Gettysburg. And the there's a big victory there. Lee is, is headed back south. And they um, promptly tell Stevens, well, you don't need to wait anymore because we're not going to talk to you. Um, go back to Richmond. So that another, uh, you know, failed effort from Stevens. So that ended there. So anyway, so to just to, to wrap this up, and we can go to some questions if anyone has it. The, this is a quote from the Deputy Navy, Navy Secretary. I'm getting his title completely wrong, but um, uh, Gustavus Vasa Fox. And he says, every rash act of this war has been crowned with success, and here is the most glorious opportunity ever afforded. And so he was in the camp of, up there saying, let's reinforce this effort against Richmond. If we capture Richmond, you know, while Lee's up in Pennsylvania, you know, it'd be a pretty big deal. That's the way he viewed it. Others said, well, it's really not the right time and we've got to deal with Lee in Pennsylvania. The, um, and then the quote from D.H. Hill, who successfully juggles all these troops and blunts, gets them in the right place to blunt uh, these operations. He says the design on Richmond was not a faint, but a faint. So shooters before tutors. Um, so, so there, you know, I won't get into some of the logistical stuff, that, but just briefly, that that destruction of that that bridge did have an effect on Lee's supply line. And my general conclusion in the book is that if the operations had extended in Pennsylvania, Lee would have had a real ammunition problem, and the destruction of that bridge complicated things and could have impacted uh, what was happening there. But things ended on July 3rd. Lee comes back to Virginia and he's closer, you know, to supply network. But anyway, well, I'll stop there. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot more to say, but um, I think it's a good place to stop. But thank you so much. Any questions? Oh, okay. um, if the uh, second bridge had been taken, would that have been decisive? I mean, uh, would that would have ended the war? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know about the second. If the second bridge were taken, it it would have had much bigger impact on Lee. But the issue. So I I went digging and I talked to people that had done a lot of digging about what is actually, one really interesting question to me is, what is actually going between Richmond and Lee during the Gettysburg campaign? What is his supply situation really? Because, you know, it's going on for several weeks. And um, so you see when he, when he comes back across the Potomac River, there's a ordnance train that has come up um, by rail to Stanton and then taken by wagon up the valley. And so there are these, these um, you know, shipments going back and forth. If that second bridge had been destroyed, then those shipments become very difficult, not impossible, 
but in difficult because they have to unload the, the trains, somehow get them across the river on wagons and then reload the train where it's not destroyed. There are also roundabout routes, but as some, you know, some of you may know, the gauges are all different in Virginia for railroads and things like that. So it's, you know, with this, these counterfactuals, it's hard to tell, um, but, the, uh, but, but it would have had a big impact. Now, in terms of the war, that, you know, would probably take a lot, lot more. And then the, the other interesting question that, that is, what if Dix had more men? What if there were fewer men? What if there were less capable officers at Richmond? If Dix had captured Richmond, what would have happened then? And that's, you know, that, that's a whole nother question. Yes. Um, the attack in North Carolina on the uh, railroad track was not too effective because they repaired it fast. Did they use the uh, Sherman neckties at that time or not? I with the they tried. I think um, it it was really hot, just like it was in Virginia, and they didn't have a lot of time. And so, but that was kind of a, a common thing to do to heat the rails and bend them around the Sherman neckties, bend them around um, uh, trees or what have you, and, and make them not immediately usable again. But the thing that the thing about the those raids against and on, on for Confederate raids and and U.S. raids against these these um, railroads, you see that they are the bridges are repaired, you know, lickety split, um, and it just kind of draws in a question like, well, what what is the what was the utility of these uh, these raids? And it seems that in North Carolina, I wrote a book about North Carolina and and the railroad was important there too. And I think the general um, conclusion has to be that really to be effective, unless you're timing the raid perfectly and you're trying to stop something that, that's a very temporary thing, the, the only real way to stop, to, to, to gain success is to create a permanent lodgement on the railroad. So in North Carolina, the obvious thing would, the big rail junction at Goldsboro, if they had moved, if the Union force had moved beyond New Bern to Goldsboro and occupied that, that would have had real success. So thanks. I wasn't aware of Dix's force over there, east of Richmond. But the first thing that comes to mind is when Meade couldn't chase Lee back to Richmond, why wasn't Dix ordered to go and meet him or that, challenge him on the way back? That's a good question. And there was a lot of, lot of thinking at the time about well, what to do with Dix's force. Do we reinforce Dix's force? And as I mentioned, do we replace Dix with Hooker? Another option was that to replace him with the North Carolina commander, a guy named John Foster. He was not the, was different from the other Foster we were talking about. But for, I think for, for Dix to get over, you know, over there, he would have to kind of get through Richmond. And Meade is also, during the kind of slow motion withdrawal, Meade is shadowing Lee most of the time. And so they're in, in, fairly close con contact. And there is some late in the month in July, there's actually some fighting um, in, uh, you know, around the valley related to that. But it's a good question. Uh, you mentioned that Stevens, when he was working on his diplomatic plans and whatnot, was really, really concerned about the the black regiments that were being formed up north at the time. What, what, what were driving those concerns? I, I think he saw it as wrong somehow. I, you know, I can't get in his mind. But the, the, one of the interesting things that I didn't talk about was, so after Stevens, his failed mission, there, there's a lot of speculation in the press about what he was doing. Because the, the letters that were prepared were released and they talked about um, prisoner exchange. There was this prisoner exchange system that was developed early in the war. It was actually developed by D.H. Hill and Dix together. So it's called the, the Dix Hill or Hill Dix cartel. Um, and so that was the purported reason for having these discussions. But as I mentioned, I think the real reason was they wanted to broach the idea of peace and Southern independence. So, with in all these newspaper reports about Stevens, there's one really interesting 
column that appears in the New York Herald from a Southern source. And there, there's a, this guy, John Williamson um, Palmer, who was a Southern sympathizer, but he was a correspondent for the Herald. And he sends this, this dispatch to the Herald and it gets printed and he swears to his editor that this is true. Um, and what it says is that Stevens really wanted to, when he was gonna have these negotiations, one of his bargaining chips was that he was gonna threaten um, that the, the uh, Confederacy would start arming slaves. And, uh, and whether this was true or not, whether it's just something this guy made up, Palmer made up, I, I don't know. But I found it very interesting because this was an issue you know, the arming enslaved people was actually occurred in the last weeks of the war in Richmond. There were a couple of companies that were created, and it was a debate that kind of raged, you know, in the months before that, near the end of the war. But there was very few mention, there's very few mention or discussion of it early in the war, as far as I know. I mean, it's mentioned once in a while. And so I found it interesting that when you look at his correspondence, his, his preoccupation with the northern, the U.S. black troops, and uh, and and then this thing that's floated in that that newspaper column—it's kind of fascinating to me. But I could never find any other threads on it. Is Fort Dix in New Jersey named for the yeah, of Fort Dix? Yes. I I'm pretty sure. I actually we were having a discussion the other day about that. If only we had you know a little. Uh, something that would have the answer, but I should look that up. <laughs> Whatever happened to Rooney Lee? Was he switched out with a prisoner exchange? Yes, he comes back and he commands his division throughout the, the, the 1864 campaign, the Overland campaign, Richmond, Petersburg. And Rooney Lee's generally consider, considered the accounts suggest you know very good commander, also you know well liked by his men, um, you know that kind of thing. And and one of the interesting things with his capture is that you know he went to Harvard and um, and he he knew a lot of the officers that were kind of capturing him. And they, everybody comes up and they're chatting with each other and stuff like that. Um, but but he wasn't happy. He felt. He felt like that, that capturing him was a violation of the of the rules of, of war because he was wounded, um, and that's a interesting. That's a question for the lawyers. So. Anything else? Any more final questions? Thanks so yeah. much.